0: You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, episode nine. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Dylan Brown. How's it going, Dylan? It's going well, man. How's it going for you? It's going good. No complaints over here. Just gearing up for tax season and
1: uh, getting everybody ready to rock
0: and roll. So good time of year, starting off strong.
1: Same here. Uh, had to take you know me being the huge sports buff that I am, as you know, uh, definitely set aside my entire Sunday to watch the uh, the Packers Cowboys game. And I presume you did the same.
0: I did. Yeah. Yeah. I made uh made pizzas again. So that was good. I actually have a question for you. I didn't ask this earlier and
1: I should have. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I do. It's all it all relates to climbing. Um I want to climb a five twelve um five twelve minus. So if people are listening to this and they don't know what the heck I'm talking about, <laughs> it's a grading system used for climbing and it's a pretty difficult grade. I'm climbing like a five ten plus, five eleven minus right now. And I'd like to be at a 512 minus 512 plus by the end of the year. So
0: um, that's cool. That's a great yeah. goal.
1: I've got a few, but one of
0: the health ones that I'm really focused on right now is to walk 3.66 million steps. Oh my gosh. It's like it's 10,000 a day. So it's just <laughs> it's just another way to like, in my mind, I have to frame things as these like big numbers to like really attack <laughs> it because 10,000 a day doesn't do it for me. But uh, yeah, so far I'm on track. It's been
1: good. Brandon, I'm not going to lie. I thought you we were going to say 3.66 million because that's the number of downloads we've gotten on the TSI podcast.
0: Oh. And I, I
1: swear that's what you're about to say next. And I was about, I was about to lose That TSI
0: it. podcast, man, is screaming, is screaming. I actually just went back there for a... Uh, we interviewed somebody from Twitter, an anonymous yep. account from Twitter, Bowtied Broke on uh, the TechSmart Real Estate Investors podcast a couple weeks ago. It was uh, It was great. It was really fun.
1: So when it's an anonymous, do you get to reveal the identity in the podcast or is it an anonymous? No, podcast you, you blur out on?
0: his face so that nobody can see and we don't reveal the identity. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of Ooh. up to them, but they didn't want that. So Interesting.
1: interesting. Yeah. That's super yeah. cool. I'll get yeah. to know all about it when, I, when I'm better at Twitter and I'm yeah. up to speed with all the people my age. So yeah. stay tuned for that.
0: Well, today we have Dave Gordon coming on. Dave is a rock star developer. He's got a lot of interesting projects. And we're really excited that you get to listen to this episode. We had a lot of fun filming it. Dave is also on Twitter. We're really trying to get Dylan like integrated into Twitter here.
1: (laughs) Peer pressure right (laughs) now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But
1: Dylan, what what was one of your favorite takeaways with Dave? Okay. So I've known about the Yellowstone club for a hot sec. I didn't know his previous firm that he worked for was actually behind the Yellowstone club. So that was cool. Also, just listening to an insider, just talk about like Bozeman, Montana and... Big Sky, Montana, Yellowstone area, that kind of neck of the woods, which is booming lately. It's nice to have an insider take on all of that. But really, I had no idea how prolific of a project he was undertaking there. I think the biggest takeaway for me is just how you can level up from I'm a high rise developer to I'm, you know. I'm doing master plan, mixed use development. I'm making a city, basically, is what I'm doing. It's a whole different type of development. It requires a different level of skill sets, different way of thinking about the project, time horizons, even like the investor base. Everything is a different paradigm. It's like the next level. I think listeners are really going to enjoy that.
0: Yeah, and and he also talks about how he utilizes qualified opportunity zones and funds. So we talked about that a little bit mm-hmm. as well, which I found really interesting. But he's deploying some pretty significant Capital. So stay tuned right after our CPA insight segment where we talk about Otani's recent contract. So I'm going to mispronounce his name. Shohei? Is that how you say it? Shohei? Shohei? Sho- Shohei. Shohei. Shohei Otani.
1: I even tried to spell it out phonetically and I still have, a tr- I still have trouble <laughs> reading it. So yeah, Shohei Otani.
0: Shohei Otani signed a $700 million contract with Dodgers and California is not happy about it. What's going on there?
1: Yeah. So the controller, the California controller, Malia Cohen, has chimed in, essentially saying that this, this deal could really have negative impact on the state of California. Because basically, the way the contract is structured, it sure seems like Shohei Ohtani will have a pretty solid chance at avoiding California income tax on the entire amount of the contract, or at least the portion that he's deferring. So the contract reads, out of the $70 million a year he's to be compensated, $68 million of that will be deferred until years from now. I think it was like in the 2030s or the 2040s, basically in the contract. We're talking years from now, he'll receive that money. And he's only getting paid 2 million cash upfront per year out of the total 7 million, 70 million. So the way it's written, it seems that he'll actually have the opportunity to go ahead and move, change residency after the contract is up. He's done playing and he's moving out of the state. And then he'll recognize the income tax outside of the state of California. So as you can imagine, the state of California is pretty unhappy about the prospect of losing. Ultimately, it works out to be about a $98 million loss to them as opposed to if he was taxed on the front end. So it's reaching the point where the controller is chiming in and asking the, the Congress to do something about this because this really has big implications for all sorts of highly compensated people in California.
0: Well, well, I think it impacts the IRS's budget. Well, not to the same degree as California's, but it, but it impacts the IRS as well, right? Because... You're still talking about, well, I I don't know how that would work. I mean, how would that work? Would the federal government be able to collect if Otani moved back to Japan and then received the remainder of his cash payment, which would be what, $660 million, $675 million? I mean, can can the federal government collect on that at that point? I guess they might be able
1: to. I would think yes. I would think that they should be able to. But then again, if it's U.S. source, why wouldn't it be California source? I guess that's the piece that I keep coming back to. That's what I'm curious about. None of the news outlets that have covered this tax notes, anything that I've read, there hasn't been any discussion about the IRS and the inability of the IRS to collect on that. And it could be very well that none of them are presuming he'll move back to Japan. But if you read the article that I read this morning on tax notes, the whole article was premised around his move to Japan and it still wasn't mentioned. That's that was my exact question, though, Brandon, I'm very curious about what how this is even structured from and it's probably it's one of those things where we just need to take a look at the contract and see exactly how they're uh, structuring. it.
0: Yeah, I'll be curious to see if this actually holds up, because I think that you're earning $70 million a year, right? Just because Mm -hmm. you receive two doesn't mean that you didn't earn the 70. It'll be interesting to watch how this
1: progresses. I don't think it's going to work out in Otani's favor, personally. I'm very curious. The only thing I can think of, Brandon, would be what if there's something in the contract that says all of this is pinned on an action that you have to take in the future. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in the year 2040, you have to jump up and down three times and wave your right hand and then you'll be entitled to the amount of money that we've listed in this contract and then that is when he has officially earned it when he's living in wyoming or japan or something
0: (laughs) yeah that's a good point maybe there's some sort of performance clause in there that is only achievable after 10 years of performance but that would be risky though i don't know (laughs) it'll be interesting to watch be interesting to see how how this progresses but uh let's go ahead and bring dave onto the show Dave, welcome to the show. Brandon, thanks so much for having me on. Excited to uh, chat with you guys. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have you here. So, why don't we start off by just having you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're at today? Uh, would love to.
2: So, I uh, I was born and raised in L.A. Went to school in Michigan, where I got my undergraduate business degree, and from there I went over to Lehman Brothers in the summer of 2008, where I joined the real estate investment banking group. If you know a little bit of history about the finance world, things pretty quickly took a turn. And in September of that year, I was one of those guys walking out with my box with uh, all my analyst buddies. Long story short, we came back in two days later just with different business cards. Barclays Capital had purchased our uh, our business. So we were doing the exact same thing back in the exact same seats, just with a different brand name. And from there, I spent about a year at Barclays before going over to CBRE. And what we were doing there was essentially creating an a investment banking platform for CB, which is you know, it, it was the largest real estate company really in the world with touch points into every other real estate company, but they had no real ability to capitalize on entity-level transactions. So the idea was pre-IPO advisory, capital raising for companies rather than portfolios or individual assets. And so we were growing at that business. I joined a couple of managing directors from JP Morgan at that time to grow that out. And after five years with CBRE, I went over to a company called Discovery Land Company, which really informed a lot of kind of the future and and my path today. Uh, It's also where I met my business partner, Grant. He was the development manager for a product in the Bahamas that I was a business manager for, so we became close friends down there. Discovery, by the way, for those who may not know, is a developer of large-scale kind of residential resort communities all around North America and really creating unbelievable projects, and experiences for successful um, folks who, who are able to purchase at those products and clubs. So at that time, I was overseeing some of the East Coast and Caribbean projects as a business manager, which really means kind of the investor relations, initial acquisition, you know, where it was applicable, and coordinating all of the teams, the sales team, the operations team, residential services, development, construction to make sure they were all aligned and implementing the business plan as needed. And so I I met my business partner down there, as I mentioned. He, a couple years in, moved back to Bozeman, Montana, where he was born and raised. And his family had been building in Bozeman forever, uh, about 40, 45 years at this point. So he went back there to work on a renovation of a 100-year-old high school right in downtown Bozeman. He and I kept in close touch, and about six months later, He gave me a call and said, Hey, I I found a great product up in Whitefish Lake, Montana. So we ended up uh, building four condo units up on the lake. And a couple years later, we found some land in Bozeman, started transitioning to really focusing on on that area. This was around the time that the QZ legislation had come out. It was kind of the middle of 2019. And our investors at that point were kind of a, a newly formed OZ specific impact fund. Like really with a, a strong focus on community and social impact. And so they were able to come in, partnering with us. We built 60 units and with no other financial incentives, really just because of the QOZ incentives that they had, uh, they allowed us to set aside 20% of the units for those making 80% AMI. And as we were working through those discussions, it really set off the, all, all those bells about what an impact the QOZ Side can be making for investors and for these areas going forward. So around the same time, we ended up identifying what is now our largest project uh, called Blackwood Groves in Bozeman. It is a 120 acre greenfield development, just about a mile south of Montana State University and adjacent to a couple of the top schools in the region, uh, Sac Middle School and then uh, Morningstar Elementary. And so we started diving into that. That's also all within the QOZ. And the business plan there was essentially to develop all of the horizontal infrastructure and then sell off each piece to subsequent vertical ventures that may or may not be QOZ, but all QOZ eligible.
0: That's a lot. You have a lot going on. So let's start with what's the purpose of using the QOZ vehicle?
2: Really, the the purpose as we see it is we're able to provide a higher level of impact to those communities without requiring any financial assistance from the local municipalities. whether or not it's available, we are able to to provide more of an impact in those areas than we otherwise would be able to. So it it doesn't necessarily benefit us directly, but because it benefits the investors, they generally have allowed us or agreed to provide certain things like the set aside for more affordable units.
0: And what are the benefits just so that everybody's aware of, and we don't have to like dive super deep into them, but what are the high level benefits of investing in a qualified opportunity fund?
2: So it depends on the timing. Uh, A couple of years ago, there was an additional benefit that may not exist today, um, depending on how this uh, new legislation rolls out if the extension happens or not. But a couple of years ago, there was a deferral, um, there was a reduction in the actual tax paid when the tax is due. But today, uh, really the main benefit as we see it is, assuming that you hold the asset for 10 years, there is a step-up in basis upon sale to match market value. So essentially, there's no capital gain upon sale. There's no no tax impact upon sale. And you also don't see the depreciation recapture as you typically would upon the sale of a real estate asset.
1: Yeah. So you're really seeing, I guess, three separate events happening on, on kind of like this linear timeline. So the first one you're talking about is the deferral piece, right? So somebody who's investing in a qualified opportunity fund likely has recently sold an asset that's triggered a gain, right? They've got funds and there's a specific timeline. We don't need to get into the nuance, but likely they've got some sort of gains that may be eligible for this quote unquote deferral. So the the piece that you mentioned, the piece that may not be available now that we're further along in the timeline, uh, since this has been released and put into the code, right, was that there was a partial permanent forgiveness of that of that gain, the portion that you defer. It was 15% for a while, then it was 10%, I believe. And now we're back to zero. So that piece is gone, but the deferral piece is still there, as I right. understand it. And that is the piece where essentially you're not paying any tax on the gain until the year that it's recognized, which is 2026. So you're paying that when you're filing your returns in 2027, as far as I understand it, the timeline there. I've got that right. And then the the second part of the timeline well, I guess this would be piece number three because part number two was the recognizing of the gain, right? And part number three is if you held onto this asset for 10 years, I believe it is, right? If you've held onto it for 10 years or longer, any subsequent gain above the purchase price, the basis in the asset that you bought, that gain is never taxed, right? I mean, that's the big big ticket item that you're talking about right there, Dave. That that is a big
2: one. And the reason that we really love this so much is because all of our projects, as we view them, for long-term holds anyway. We're not merchant builders. We're not in a you know, fix and flip type game. We are building really well-designed, high-quality buildings with great materials, uh, spending a lot of time on the construction side to make sure that everything we're doing is very high quality for a long-term hold, with the idea that you know we and our investors hold these things forever. And that just aligns perfectly with the QZ program, because the longer you hold it, the bigger the benefit, at least, at least as far as the 10 years ago, And so for a product, especially one the size of Blackwood Groves, which is a large master plan community that is going to be several more years to build out, it just aligns so well with the overall strategy there as well.
0: I was going to ask about your hold period. And so I'm glad you brought it up. You're holding these assets forever. I presume there's going to be some 1031 exchanges in there. But are you kind of saying once you put the money in, we're not really, we're not pulling it out?
2: For all of the products that we have right now, that that is certainly the intention. You know, refinancing to the extent those are available again at some point in the future. But most of our investors are institutional capital partners who have uh, you know QOZ focus right now. So most of them are uh, you know, have subsequent investors who are looking at long term projects, and then the rest are family offices and, and high net worth investors who just don't see the benefit to continually flipping, which was kind of the norm going back five, 10, 15 years ago.
0: What informed this strategy versus the you know, seven-year time horizon that I feel like is relatively standard? What made you decide we're going to develop and then hold this for forever?
2: The, I mean, really part of it was the discussion with investors about where they were going to be putting that capital anyways. If you're working with a typical kind of real estate, private equity fund that has five to seven-year timelines depending on where you are in their fund, you know, that may be three to five years. And so as soon as you're stabilized, you have to consider selling the asset. Now, a a lot of this was informed by, I guess, two things. One is my partner's family, because they've been building for so long, everything that they've done is insanely high quality product. And when you're building to that kind of quality, you don't want to sell it there's an emotional attachment to it and a lot of the stuff that we consider early on is how can we reduce long-term maintenance and operating costs of these assets so we go over and above with you know wall and floor assemblies uh, to reduce noise which helps with tenant retention you know therefore reducing the cost of turnovers those sorts of things we over insulate you know a lot of things like that kind of go more toward the hospitality field with certain interior designs and really just try and make it You know, you may not understand why it feels good, but you know that when you're walking throughout the space and the units, that it just it feels good. So that that's one aspect. But the other aspect is really just in conversations with investors, if they're looking at a five or seven year hold and then you sell it, they've got to then find something else to redeploy that capital into. And there may or may not be those opportunities in the future. But if you're getting nice cash on cash returns and seeing an asset that you uh, you have an emotional attachment to. That there may not be a reason to sell it. So mm. that combined with the QZ benefits for you know a minimum of 10 years helps. And then I guess one third thing is as we're building out specifically the Black & Gross project, our strong belief is that all of the vertical ventures within this project, all the individual product that we're building are going to benefit the more that gets built out. So if you sell something too early, you may not see that accretion in value as you would if you sell it Ten years from now, once the skating rink and the whole village core are complete and the whole product is is available and and, you know ready to to live, I think you know the longer we continue to hold it, the more value there's going to kind of continue to uh, to be throughout all these ventures.
0: So, since you guys are building in qualified opportunity zones, are you kind of like the first movers in the area to, especially because it sounds like you guys are building a really high quality product? Does the end product kind of is it is it overbuilt for the area at the time, but the whole goal is to kind of bring in that skating rink and all that gentrification? That's a great question. Uh, it would have been a different answer a couple years ago. There has been
2: more development on this. So our Blackwood Ghost project is on the south side of Bozeman, which over the last, you know, call it a decade, hadn't seen much new development. But over the last two years, since we completed our Penrose project, which is a, a 60 unit QZ project, just right next to our Blackwood project that we're building out. We've started to see quite a bit more new supply coming in. Now, all of it is residential right now. Everything new that's, that's coming in, which in our view is very, very helpful to the overall Blackwood Groves case that we're trying to make because a big portion of that is our village square that we're planning right now. And uh, we're about to break ground on in infrastructure this summer for that phase. The more heads and units that we have around us, the better for that commercial component. And that's what we believe is really going to create the experience for for the entire Blackwood Groves project. Just as a a quick summary of what Blackwood Groves is, I mentioned it's 120 acres. Um, What we envision there is a fully walkable and pedestrian-oriented community that's a range of product types and price points. So we are underway on 120 cottages right now that are all for rent. We've sold a number of home sites that are bordering the adjacent uh, single-family neighborhood that's just to our north. And we're about to break ground on these great tenplexes that we're calling Arbor Houses. Every unit has its own private entry and direct access to garage. We have more of those Arbor Houses planned around this great big park that we're building with the Village Square as the next big component that we're working on right now. So all of these different neighborhoods are tied together via linear parks and paseos that we've planned. So that they're all easily walkable and totally connected to each other, to the village square and to those local schools that I mentioned, uh, kind of creating safe routes to schools for, you know, any young families in the community. And the other benefit to that is as you kind of grow or, you know, as your kind of life continues, you can start out, you know, in one of our more typical apartments. If you have a family, you can move into one of the cottages, which are all rental product. You can then step up into the next product and step up into a single family home all within this single project. That's really kind of a, a big goal of ours is to get a wide demographic, wide range of price points so that people can have a lot of flexibility within the bounds of this project.
1: I've got to say, it sounds like the project vision aligns really well with the vision that our Congress had for what the opportunity zone program was going to do you know beyond just providing tax benefits to those investors but what is the ultimate goal right the congressional intent to, to really incentivize this was to create thriving communities, create thriving businesses in areas that needed it, right? So to me, it really sounds like it's working, right? The, the, more than just the tax benefits, it's really, it's, it, the incentives were there to provide this end. It was a means to an end. And I think that it's actually working if, if the way you're describing it is coming to fruition. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I have to say, just from an outside perspective, you know, watching, and I'm not in Bozeman, but I hear a lot about Bozeman being kind of a hotspot for development. It seems like you guys, you know, quite frankly, may have gotten either really lucky or had a really fantastic foresight on what they, and you mentioned it even a little bit, and I wanted to dive into a little bit more about what the last couple of years have been like is in the development front in Bozeman. That's something that watching from afar, I've sit in Minnesota and my clients are hearing about it. I'm hearing it talked about. This is a hot spot for development so i want to hear a little bit more about what changed maybe it's oz related maybe it's not i just want to hear about what has caused this kind of this rush of especially residential development and um maybe i want to hear a little bit more about is there some element of your guys's involvement your partner's long family history in the construction of that area that maybe had seen this coming and had really doubled down for that reason so let's just talk about that for a second that's
2: a great question And, and i think that that has a lot to do with it so bozeman historically, you know, call it 50,000 full-time residents plus Montana State University is located within Bozeman, which you know, right now is about 17,000 full-time students. You know, really for the last 10 years, there's been kind of slow development over time in certain areas. It wasn't booming over that 10-year period, but it was growing quickly. It, w- it was the fastest growing micropolitan in the country, but starting from a relatively low base. You know, it's a really amazing city. You have this I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with highlight recreation area but it is it's 20 minutes outside the gates of black of groves just south of bozeman unbelievable mountains uh reservoir and lake there's a, a few hikes that um you know take you past 13 waterfalls it's just one of these most the most amazing places you can imagine if you go just 20 minutes in the other direction just north of town you've got bridger bowl uh great ski mountain kind of a locals hot spot over there and then you have um, importantly, you have Big Sky about an hour away, depending on weather, you know, call it an hour from Bozeman, and to get to Big Sky, you fly into Bozeman. The growth of Big Sky has been absolutely enormous over the last five to 10 years with Yellowstone Club kind of restarting things after the crash uh, with Cross Harbor and with Discovery Land. And then Cross Harbor a couple of years ago um, was able to take over uh, Spenge Peaks and Moonlight Basin. And they have built out the Big Sky Town Center, just really doing amazing things over there, building it out very quickly. And they have a huge workforce that needs housing. So the population growth that kind of the Bozeman and Big Sky area has seen has been really rapid over the last 10 years, you know, largely because of that. Now, over the last few years, you have had a few things. One was obviously, you know, I'm sure you both know about the show Yellowstone, um, which uh, I I do believe has had an impact on the number of folks that have been at least coming to check out the Bozeman area and and really have an interest in Montana. But more importantly than that, I think the COVID dynamics where people were leaving some of the bigger cities, spending time in these smaller markets and really falling in love with them had a huge impact. You know, If you come out to Bozeman and see it, you'll understand why people love it and people end up staying there for longer than they may have expected. Because it it's really a phenomenal city. So I, I think that drove a lot of population growth during a short period. And the supply was not keeping up, obviously, as happened throughout many areas in the country. Supply just what is it keeping up during COVID? So over the last couple of years, you saw a big supply move, which started pushing down toward our project. Now, Blackwood Groves was envisioned. We purchased the land before COVID. And we envisioned the whole project as it was before COVID. The last couple of years, I think, accelerated some movement toward Bozeman, but long-term, that's where the trajectory was going anyways.
0: I'm curious, Dave, to learn a little bit about your internal sort of team structure. How does your strategy of develop, hold forever, slash a long time, how does that influence how you've built your team? We have a lot of clients that are in the syndication and the fund space, and so they have five to seven-year horizons for their deals, right? They're trying to maximize IRR and all this stuff. But sometimes they have to do deals to feed their team, (laughs) which can lead to doing bad deals, which I think that we've seen a lot of syndicators do. And I'm not calling you a syndicator, but we've seen a lot of that over the past two years, right? As people took on bridge debt and didn't go the agency route. How does this like long-term horizon influence how you've built your team, Like, what is the difference between what your team structure looks like and maybe what one of these other shops that's got to churn deals every five to seven years looks like?
2: That's a great question, Brandon. Um, So it's funny when you look at most developer websites or as I've been doing recently, we're we're working on updating our, our website right now. So I spend a lot of time looking at other sponsors' websites. I'm always surprised by the size of our peers' teams who are two, three, four times the size of ours. Bridgerland Group is me and my partner, Grant. And we have four employees right now. Three are development managers. And we have one associate who kind of runs between all the projects. Our development managers each have a specific expertise. One of them is a horizontal development expert. He was a civil engineer by trade. So everything from underground utilities to streetscapes and parks and all those pieces, he's, he's an expert on. Our other development manager is really a vertical expert. He was a GC, actually up in Big Sky for a long time, he was building, you know, super high end custom homes and is just a fantastic builder. And the third development manager is really a true development manager. Um, everything from pre-construction really kind of acting as quarterback between the design team, the engineering team, getting things through the city process. So we have kept our team intentionally very, very small so that there is no pressure at any point to do deals just to do deals. We also have a pretty large group of consultants who assist us, who are able to pull in or pull out as needed for the various projects. So that's kind of how we think about things is our team is sustainably small so that we don't have to do anything, but very knowledgeable in the pieces that they're working on so that they can just run with whatever's on their plate at that moment.
1: I wanted to circle back to a comment you made. It was an aha moment for me. And it was when you were talking about the Yellowstone Club. I had no idea that was a discovery land company development, first of all. But I had definitely heard of the Yellowstone Club in terms of all the rage, even though here in the Midwest, I have clients who are buying property out there and seeing the values explode and people on the West Coast wanting to move their families out there for, I mean, the same reasons we've seen a lot of people moving out there. But what you said kind of added a lot of clarity about kind of the geographic landscape and the layout of, the, you know, the roles that all the cities play, because quite frankly, and I'll be the first to admit, when you were describing your project, like I was imagining kind of that Yellowstone Club high-end-esque feel, but what you're really describing is there's a place for all these workforce housing too. Would you describe your community? I think you already have a little bit, just describing the community that you're developing as kind of that type of community. but a place to grow and expand for those workforce housing type situations? Yeah, I think you're right on. The intention isn't necessarily to house
2: the workforce for Big Sky. It's really to be permanent homes for those in Bozeman. But I think what you were getting at is an important point. That is the background that Grant and I got from our time with Discovery and really the experience that Discovery and their products are able to offer to you know, to those folks that are fortunate enough to be members and, and owners in those clubs. We, we got spent spend a lot of time, I spent almost 10 years there, um, really seeing from the inside the operations of those projects and, and the experience that you're able to, del- to deliver to a family. And one of the things that Grant and I spend a lot of time thinking about is how can we deliver that amazing experience to folks who may not be in that income demographic? So. You know, providing a variety of housing types within our project, which has you know a great park within three minutes of every home, but also providing things like convenient landscaping and housekeeping and potential nanny services, those sorts of things. You know, how can we be offering nature guides to kids who are living within there, so that you can hop in a sprinter van with one of our ambassadors and they take you up to highlight for the day, almost like a club type feel, but within the HOA. And that's one of the pieces that we spent a lot of time on is trying to convert some of the best of what we
1: learned during our times there, but pairing it with folks that are living in the local communities. Awesome. You had used a term before we were recording this, you had used the term, the missing middle. Is that what you're describing now? Or is that something separate? That's a big part of our focus right now.
2: And I think two product types that we're extremely excited about that we're just rolling out right now are, are rental cottages which are called 700 to 1,300 square foot mm-hmm. single family homes. Very efficiently designed, but they live great. I, I was in Bozeman for two weeks with my family over the break, and we were staying in one of our cottages. Uh, I've got two little kids, four and six, and so they were in the bedroom upstairs. My wife and I were downstairs, and it lives like a true single family home, and we could live there forever. So. That's one, that's one of our big focuses is that kind of product. And then the other is the 10 that I mentioned, uh, what we call the Arbor houses. They were designed to look like a large custom single family home, but efficient to house 10 units and every unit lives almost like a single family home because they have their own private entries and, and direct access to garages, to private garages. So what we're really excited about, you know, both at Blackwood, but also expanding this content more broadly. Is delivering those two housing types throughout the mountain states and west coast because that's not really something that has been promoted much recently it's a hard product type to build you know what you tend to see more often is larger single-family homes as built to rent like in in arizona and places like that and typical apartments what we're trying to deliver is is very different than that which kind of lives more like a detached um, structure for families, for young professionals, for empty nesters, but is efficient to build and efficiently priced. So that, that's been a big focus of ours. And, you know, again, just going back to quality of the design, quality of the build, um, itself and materials that we're using. Once we have these up and running, we really want to be holding these for as long as possible. So I, I I think it continues to parallel with the OZ program on that side, as we
1: look to expand that concept. Awesome. I love to hear that. And, you know, another thing that you mentioned when we were initially talking or exchanging emails was the challenges, right? I want to hear a little bit about the challenges. Specifically, I think you had mentioned related to the cottages, and maybe that's challenges relating to the construction logistics. Maybe that's challenges in the planning. I'm not sure exactly what the most challenging part is, but I do want to talk about, you know, everything's not roses. I want to hear a little bit about what are the biggest things that in roadblocks and challenges you face with those cottage communities and those 10 plexes? Yeah, so... We love this product type because when we were initially envisioning it,
2: as you can imagine, every home is a detached structure. And so we're getting individual building permits for every cottage. And what that allows for is you you get one cottage complete, you can place it into service and start generating cash flow from the initial phases of the project as you're building out the later phases. The, The challenging piece comes where you start getting building permits back that is in a different order than you have maybe anticipated it. And so instead of starting one area, doing an assembly line, you're kind of just starting foundation work on one here, one down here, one on the other side. And so they kind of spring up in different areas as you're getting building permits back, uh, depending on timeline to get building permits, which can throw a wrench into your overall logistics plan. So that's what we found really starting out these cottages was it was more challenging on just the timing and, and getting things going. We ended up being able to you know, kind of rephase things so that we could strategically handle logistics for certain areas as we built it out, but kind of just that hodgepodge approach because they are individually permitted um, was a huge challenge of ours to begin with. And on the leasing side, it's been pretty incredible, the feedback that we've been getting and and the just amount of tours coming in. Uh, So one of the things that we really spend a lot of time on is the interior finishes for our units, which is different than a lot of our peers. We spend more time thinking about kind of core amenity buildings and facilities rather than the units themselves. So th- that's one area where we really try and differentiate ourselves. Like for instance, our Penrose project, we, we just put a ton of time into the interior finishes of that project. And when you walk in, you can, I, I think you can feel it after you live there for a little bit, uh, you start looking at other apartments and uh, it just, it feels different, but we don't have those big amenity spaces, pools, Um, you know, all the things that are great for leasing tours, uh, that may or may not get used much during, especially during the winter. And so that's one of the things that we've been focused on with, with Blackwood also is really trying to centralize all of those great amenities within the village square, so that all of the residents of Blackwood will have access to all those amenities, but not within each individual community. So it was a question, how would Lisa be at a community that may not have those amenities today versus some that do? Uh, so we've been happily surprised by by the feedback we've been getting to date and just how quickly these have
0: been leasing out. I'm curious how you capitalize these deals. Can you kind of talk about the capitalization stack? Like, What does your debt stack look like? What does your equity look like? I think that'd be good for, for folks to know. And maybe this deal, but also like just in general.
2: So to date, most of our
0: products have been with institutional capital
2: partners. We have one partner. Uh, it's a really just a uh, OZ-focused institution uh, based out of Salt Lake City, uh, very impact focused and impact oriented. So all of their investors are primarily family offices or high net worth investors who invested with them because they want to do good, along with doing well, they, they wanna do good. And so that group has been our partner on essentially every deal. Um, we also have a partner, which is a, a urban investment fund. Uh, within one of the larger investment banks in, in New York uh, who has a OZ focused fund as well. Um, so those are our two larger partners. Um, they were the equity for uh, Penrose. They were the equity for our cottages that are underway right now. And we also have a, a project that I haven't spoken about yet, but we have a 235 unit project that's underway in downtown LA, also in the QOZ on the south side of downtown. Um, and that that's with the same two, uh, two institutional partners. For the land side, it's a little bit different. So we ended up taking down the Blackwood land with a local investor uh, who kind of shared an overall vision for the south side of town. And for our arbor houses that we're about to break ground on, we've started seeing more interest coming in from individual investors. So that's gonna be capitalized by uh, just a couple of individuals who sold a, a ranch in late 2023 and wanted to reinvest those gains into uh, into a project uh, within a QOZ. So it has been, because that's our most recent project, we've had to educate a lot of folks about OZ, and so it's been a lot of fun actually having those conversations again, and not necessarily focusing on, you know, IRR or, or individual basis points, but talking more to the, you know, again, the the quality of what we're building, the design of what we're building, who we're gonna be housing, and, the kind of the individual benefits that our direct investors will see. So one of the things we've been kind of batting around is what our ideal uh, kind of capital structure looks like going forward, whether it is, whether it continues to be institutional or whether we shift to more of a focus on individual investors. It's something we, we continue to, uh, uh, you know, to think about. But on the debt side, because these are all long-term holds and we're not trying to maximize IRR per se, especially on, on day one, we have been focused on relatively low leverage for all of our construction projects. Across our portfolio, we're at about 54%. Uh, if you look just at Bozeman, we're at 50% loan to cost. If you look at loan to value, it's you know in the high 30s right now. So a lot of that, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of that is really driven by what I saw to start my career with the implosion of Lehman, what that meant for developers that we were funding at the time or you know, we, we stopped funding pretty quickly and just what can happen when the debt market stops and making sure we're not in a position where we are heavily impacted by it. So, one of the things that we've been focusing more recently on and the way that our Penrose and our Cottages projects are set up, they're essentially mini-perms on the construction financing side where we have a couple years interest only in an eight-year runway to maturity no prepayment penalties, which is very helpful. So we can strategically go in and, and refi it if we would like to, but we're not obligated to at any point. So it's a uh, really, I mean, it's a great position to be in at that point so that you can really uh, just optimize for the overall success of the project, rather than you know just trying to maximize IRR for year two or whatever that looks like.
0: And I'm curious with this strategy of develop, hold forever, What's your exit strategy? Like, What, what does in-game look like for you?
2: So we weren't as thoughtful on the first project, but since then we, we learned more. I think the crystallization concept became much more um, in vogue uh, a couple of years in. So all of our recent projects, we have a crystalliz- crystallization right at stabilization so that we are essentially indifferent on, uh, on the gold period. Um, that, that's what we've been focused on. And that's what aligns us with with all the investors.
1: I love the thought of a crystallization event because that's something, you know, we could have a whole concept on an entire podcast alone, just on what that is, how to structure it, what that could mean for tax purposes. But I've seen that as kind of the golden child in terms of both strategy, in terms of realizing the gain that you've put into it as you're not the money person. You're the talent. You're putting the deal together. You're the GP, right? You're you're crystallizing. It's exactly what it sounds like for our listeners who haven't heard of it, right? It's you're crystallizing your interest and converting it into a vested capital interest. You're now riding along as kind of like the LPs would be, right? You're 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 uh, solidifying your interest, but there's also a lot of tax benefits to that. Structured properly, uh, talk to your CPA. Disclaimer, right? Structured properly. I mean. There can be, and it can be a non-realization event as well, which is, I guess, equally powerful, right? Equally powerful when we're talking about, uh, you know, this is a text podcast hosted by two CPAs. This is, this is the kind of thing we like to dive into. So that's when my ears perk up. I hear crystallization event and I'm just curious. Um, well, yeah, I'm just curious maybe when that, when the idea struck and how you, you uh, if you care to kind of go into the specifics of how the economics look post-crystallization, um, share it to the extent that you're able to.
0: It's Twitter, man. You got to get on Twitter, Dylan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's your problem. <laughs> we t- talk about it all the time on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> exactly
0: right. Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. Exactly. You're <laughs> not the Whatever. first
1: person to tell me that. You're, yeah. Everybody keeps <laughs> telling me and messaging me. Why are you not on Twitter? I'm sorry, guys. I'll get there eventually. I just haven't put it together yet.
0: <laughs> you
2: would know all this. Um, I, I probably found out about it on Twitter, to be honest. Um, it was either that or talking to one of our capital partners about how they were structuring other projects. Um, one of the pieces that we've been focused on more recently is the refinancing rights that the sponsor has versus the LPs have. Because for a long-term hold, obviously, that can uh, be impactful when it comes to the promotes. So we've, we've started also structuring in uh, certain rights where we can reasonably refinance. Subject to certain constraints on debt service coverage, those sorts of things. But as far as kind of the, the economics, generally how they look, you know, call it a 25 over a 8% preferred return. So the investor's seeing an 8% prep over the, uh, you know, call the 10 year hold. After that point, we're seeing the 25% promote. Um, and we, we have a catch up baked in there as well, 50 50 catch up. And so we run the waterfall once we're post stabilization. And see where that shakes out. And that's kind of how uh, how the interests get divvied up at that point in time
1: and I've seen this done a few different ways where there's kind of like a tiered approach or it's just a hard stop after crystallization. It's Pari passu, pro rata. like we're done. now we're just we're just partners. is it, Is yours one of those hard stops where it's just simple, straightforward, like whatever your value is at the time, their crystallized value, that just becomes a pro rata share of the overall deal alongside the other investors? We, we actually have
2: both, depending on the investor and how hard they push or not, we have a true up in a couple of them and we don't have a true up in, in others. Um, you know, it's like it's impossible to say whether that helps or hurts which side. There's a lot of game theory involved on, on who it helps and hurts. So we really kind of just push that decision on to our investors to see what they prefer,
1: because uh, I could see it going either way. Well, you're a finance guy, so you know that the option has intrinsic value no matter what, right? It, the optionality is valuable in and of itself. So just hearing that, it's, it's very interesting. And I like the term game theory because it sums it up well of just kind of like, uh, if you have a savvy investor who's looking at uh, you know the deal and they're saying they're trying to weigh the pros and cons of allowing you to have certain provisions in your crystallization. Uh, walk us through for our listeners and for me, admittedly, I just want to know what you mean when you said, what was the term that you just said? True up provision? Is that the term you just said? Yep. So the crystallization, let's say it happens in
2: year three, it's based on stabilization of the asset. So 90 or 95% uh, occupied. Then in year 10 or upon sale, there could be a true up of what that looks like. And so you run the waterfall at that point to either add interest to the sponsor side or reduce the interest on the sponsor side to make sure that it Mm matches what the economics are like at that point in time. So it it just, it, it kind of right sizes it to to get the sponsor the amount that they would have received if the the
1: crystallization did not happen. I understand. That makes sense. And it accounts for, I'm assuming, all the interim distributions that may have resulted as a result of the crystallization, you know, since whatever, year three, if that was the year of stabilization through whatever year it's disposition. So that's very interesting. Yeah, and and I've seen it uh, one way, uh, maybe very uh, GP favorable. So where it's like... um, it, it only trues up in a favorable direction for the GP, but maybe not in an unfavorable direction. But then again, it's, there's so much creative liberty. You know, all these, it's, it's, it's not like running a corporation. That's kind of the beauty of what in our world, you know, the LLC partnership structure, the, the private equity style operating. This is where you have the creative liberty and things can get real interesting real fast. So this is the kind of stuff where you're just starting to scratch the surfaces where we in our tax nerdiness can start to get it out of hand. So, yeah. and, <laughs> and the and, and the legal dollars. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. We, the attorneys uh, probably, want to have this conversation and keep it going yes, until the sun sets, right? <laughs> yes, well, what, what about? Um, <laughs> yeah. So,
2: yeah, th- th- that's one of the reasons why we try and like, we we have a template operating agreement at this point. That you know there are a couple of things that um, you know we can easily be flexible on, like that true up, for instance. But otherwise, it's trying to keep things as simple and straightforward as possible. So we could just you know talk through it with a institutional um, investor who has their own requirements and who has already kind of reviewed documents like these, or a individual investor who may not have any real estate investment experience at all. And we can easily talk through and explain those different pieces without going too uh, deep into the weeds or into crazy nuances that aren't fair in some cases.
1: Absolutely. This is my opportunity then to say, if you're across the table from an LP or an investor who doesn't have that savvy understanding of the operating agreements, right? What are you going to say to them? Are you going to say, "Go, you know, pound sand? Or are you going to say, you know, you should really have your CPA look at this with you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly, and, and, and An well, attorney, well, we, right? It's, a, it's equally important. Yeah,
2: it, 100%. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the things we just did was we, we took our newest investor through the operating agreement, spent a couple hours actually going through every section and explaining just in layman's terms what everything means. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're going through it with their... Uh, with their attorney as well but it's just one of those things that i have to be able to have a straight face when i'm talking through this with somebody um Mm -hmm. there's just you know there's no upside in trying to sneak something through or do something that isn't you know market and equitable on uh one of the things that you'll see when you jump on twitter is a lot of discussions about i shouldn't call them unfair but uh terms that are not market in agreements mm-hmm. like this, and honestly, for a, especially for a long-term hold, that's the last thing you want to be dealing with is a partner who you're going to have for a number of years, just, you know, say, Hey, I didn't understand that. And you led me astray. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, th- that's the last thing we want to have happen. So that, that, sure. is important for a lot of our thinking as well. Yeah. That's really a good point. I like that. It's almost a good thing to end on. Um, You know, if we're taking a look at our operating agreements and we're not sure what we're taking a look at and we, you know, first things first, the sponsor should have the understanding of what's in the operating agreement and have the confidence to be able to walk you through that. If you're a sponsor listening to this and that's not something that you feel confident in. Or if you're just working off of boilerplate uh, attorney documents and you don't feel like you're qualified or really even understand the deal that you're offering, it's probably a sign that you need to upscale your advisors and get in touch with someone like on our team, or you maybe talk to your attorney. Is it time to potentially start shopping around for a new attorney, somebody who has the heart of a teacher? That's kind of the term I like to think of. So that's actually a really good and valuable lesson for anybody listening. So we're nearing the end of our hour. It's been a really fantastic time getting to talk to you. I think we're gonna have to have to, we're gonna have to do a couple more of these, just because I think that we've identified several more rabbit holes that could turn into episodes in and of themselves. I have two more questions for you. The first one, is a question I ask everybody at the end. We're calling it the Streamline Spotlight. What technology have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that has made you more effective? That's a great question. So one thing that you might be
2: surprised to hear is we don't have an accountant on our team. Uh, you're looking at our uh, uh, right now?
0: you right in heart, <laughs> man.
2: Uh. <laughs> uh, and, 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 except, except your team when it comes to tax season. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that has been an absolute game changer for us was implementing Yardi Voyager about a year and a half ago, which is not an inexpensive uh, accounting solution, no. but it is the most phenomenal software I could imagine right now for our team. So as I'm sure a lot of um, you know, your, your previous you know, discussions have kind of hit on, most developers start off with Microsoft Excel. That's their cash flow model. That's their accounting system. That's everything. How you keep your schedule. That's everything. That's how we started, too. So we then upgraded to a, a small time accounting system called Budget Track, which wasn't great. It was inexpensive, though, and that was number one in our mind three years ago. And a couple of years ago, we made the decision, we've got to really upgrade this. So we started reviewing, um, I mean, really between AppFolio and Yardi And the big yeah. driver for me was Yardi's construction module and their job costing is incredible and incredibly powerful. And it also integrates with Procore and, and other um, project management solutions that we, that we utilize. So I'm able to upload all of our invoices. And once our team is able to go through and approve them, depending on the development manager on which project they can go through and approve their individual projects. And then I'm able to process uh, all those invoices all through that system. And it automatically, you know, keeps all the accounting up to date through that system. So we do, you know, an automatic bank rec every month. And and then we just, you know, export all of our financials and be sending out to our investors. So it's allowed us to keep our team small rather than having to hire three accountants full-time. And it allows us to really track things incredibly diligently and in a detailed way that without the software, I don't know where we would be. So it's been it's been really powerful. And um, I think everyone on our team loves it, even though you know, I, I will say the first year of implementation was a uh, less than fun process for me as a non-accountant.
0: It, just for everybody listening to that might be interested in using Yardi, at what point in your business, did you realize you needed a Yardi versus like, I'm going to risk, risk it by saying QuickBooks Online or Appfolio or like Bilium or something like that? Like, what, at what point of scale did you go, man, I really need what Yardi has? I guess it was twofold. It was while we were building out our 60
2: unit project, it almost became a credibility factor for us with our investor who was institutional to be talking about our accounting in Excel. Uh, So pretty quickly wanted to jump on something that was a more proven solution. That's when we got on uh, the uh, builder, build track, I forgot the name of it now. Um, And I mean, really when we started building out Blackwood and and the Eden in downtown LA, um, started talking through with our investors what their other sponsor partners are using. And almost everyone went to Yardi uh, Appfolio is, is great and has a lot of benefits. It's also a lot easier to use and implement, I think. But the lack of customization ability, I think, is a big shortcoming for, you know, for somebody like us who may not be you know, straight on target of what they're looking to provide. You know, we're, we're not just a property manager. We do, we do everything from you know, pre-construction to you know, development of all of these projects and um, you know, also oversee asset management for, for all these going forward.
1: Yeah, Yardi really is. It's a it's a full service suite of add ons beyond just an accounting software. You have complete visibility and integrations to other systems you might use. It's yeah. it, for various reasons. I'd say it's the industry leader. There's very few people who can compete besides kind of a. The top of the industry, custom made software as a service companies that are almost unattainable for most people. This is like a software package that is really cutting edge and leading class. So uh, we're not sponsored by Yardi. We're just big fans, right? <laughs> not not sponsored yet. <laughs> oh man, Dave, it's been a really great pleasure to have you on today. I think this is a, this is going to have to become a recurring thing. But until then, we're super glad you're able to join. One last question for you. How can somebody get in contact with you if they want to get in touch? Uh, follow me on Twitter at
2: DaveGordon14. That's probably the easiest way. Uh, email is David at com. So check out, uh, check out our site, although uh, an update is coming soon. Um, and also check out our Blackwood Ghost project. We we'll love feedback from, uh, from any and all and uh, just love chatting about it. And Dylan, Brandon, thank you guys both so much for having me on. Brandon, obviously uh, been great working with you for several years on on a bunch of our projects. And Dylan, looking forward to working with you more on on our projects upcoming.
0: Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.